0: where common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. I'll be the first to admit that I love a little bit of Roundup in my life. Roundup in my life. Here now is your host. He is quite a character. His name is Jeff. Ladies and
1: gentlemen, Mr.
0: Jeff. Jeff Eager. Hello and welcome to the Oregon Roundup Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Eager. I'm recording on the afternoon of Thursday, February 9th, thanks for listening today. wanted to remind you, you can help us out a lot by doing a few things. First of all, subscribe to the podcast, Oregon Roundup podcast or Roundup podcast on Apple podcast, Google podcast, or Spotify. That helps other people find us. If you are subscribed to the podcast, or if you even just listen to it on one of those apps, give the podcast a five-star review. We have no reviews so far, and I would hate for a hater to be the first person to leave a review and give me a zero-star review and some kind of scathing written comment. If you leave me a five-star review and leave something in the comments section that is not profane, I'd be happy to read it on the air, especially since it'll be the first one. So be the first one, first in the door. The other way you can help is to become a paid subscriber of the Oregon Roundup on Substack that gives you access to all of the newsletters and archives and podcasts and whatnot that we do. Hopefully you've noticed that we've stepped up the kind of intensity, the frequency, and I would argue the quality of the stuff we're putting out there, all of that takes time and effort that could be put into other things. And so when you subscribe and pay to subscribe to the Oregon Roundup, it helps me justify doing this stuff. So if you like it, And you can spare five bucks a month. It really helps us out if you can become a paid subscriber. Today, we have an interview with John Horvick, who works for DHM Research, which is a pollster out of Portland. Just recorded that interview with him, and it's a really informative one. The political nerds in the audience will appreciate it. We talk about the 22 election, especially kind of what happened with the governor's race at the end when Drazen went from leading to trailing and we talk also about some of the demographic trends in Oregon and Multnomah County and how that might affect Oregon politics. Before we get into the into the interview with John, wanted to touch on a few headlines that are on topics that we we've been covering here at the Oregon Roundup. There it seems like there's a lot going on right now in our on our beat as they say. And so let's just jump into those quickly here Headline in Willamette Week, bankrupt crypto firm FTX wants political contributions back. This story is by Anthony Effinger, or Effinger, who writes for Willamette Week. And this is a follow-up to the story that we've covered extensively here at the Roundup, wherein an associate of Sam Bankman fried who has been charged with fraud by the United States Department of Justice, the way in which he ran his crypto exchange called FTX, an associate of Sam Bankman fried last name is Singh, S-A-I-N-G-H, apparently gave $500,000 to the Oregon Democrat Party just a few days before the November 2022 election. The Democrat Party of Oregon proceeded to spend at least some of that money helping to elect Tina Kotek in that same election. Ever since then, the, the Democrats have been mum about what they're going to do with the money that they received. Now, in this uh, new report from Willamette Week, we learn what is not a surprise, but that FTX Trading Limited, which is now in bankruptcy and is being run by people who are basically trying to claw back money in whatever way possible to try to make the defrauded investors whole, FTX in its current iteration has told parties and candidates who received money from Sam Bankman-Fried and his and his associates to please, pretty please pay back the money you got from us because it was obtained fraudulently by FTX at the time. And if you don't do it willingly, we will take other measures to come get it for you. In that piece I wrote a while back, a ticking time bomb for Oregon Democrats. This is one more tick on the bomb. This story in Willamette Week points out the amount of money that The Oregon Democrat Party received from this associate of Sam Bankman-Fried $500,000 significantly dwarfs the amount it's reporting as cash on hand, which is $151,653.29. So to the degree that FTX follows through on its threat to try to claw back these funds that were donated to political causes throughout the country by Sam Bankman-Fried and his associates, the Democrat Party of Oregon is directly in the crosshairs. They continue to say we have nothing more to say about this. Have not said whether they'll return it, bear in mind that the money, any money that they return, any repayment to FTX would go to make whole those defrauded investors. That is the sole purpose of getting that money back. And the Democrat Party of Oregon has not indicated whether they will do that willingly. I would just point out that, you know, to Willamette Week's credit, they actually asked the Democrat Party of Oregon that question, and they said, "No further comment imagine the f- the shoe on the other foot here if if the Republican Party of Oregon somehow got a five hundred thousand dollars donation from someone, which probably has never happened and then there was even the slightest whiff of fraud or irregularity in reporting, both of which attain definitely to this donation to the Democrats. Do you think that the people running the Republican Party of Oregon would not have reporters camped out in front of their office and in front of their home asking them and shouting questions at them, demanding to get an answer to this situation? No, the media would be all over this and they should be all over this scandal. I'll just call it that that's afflicting the Democrat Party of Oregon right now. Bringing more attention to these kinds of stories is one of the things we're really trying hard to do here at the Oregon Roundup because we believe that they are underreported. There are reporters out there doing a good job, but they don't get the attention that they deserve, and there's a reason for that, and we're trying to change that balance. Second story, lawmakers and top OLCC officials benefited from diversion of rare whiskey investigation finds This is also from Willamette Week. Reporter Nigel Jaquess, who does some great work for Willamette Week, This is a story that just broke yesterday, Wednesday, and it was first reported actually by the Oregonian that an internal review by the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission, formerly the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, found that agency officials, including longtime director Steve Marks, diverted rare and valuable whiskey from public sale to their own personal use and to unnamed lawmakers. So I'll come back to that in a moment. Apparently there was this internal review of this problem during the summer, and they determined that Marks and others had diverted these rare whiskeys to their own personal use, which is a violation of Oregon ethics laws because the general public doesn't have access to that same thing. And even if they paid for it, as they claim they did, Oregon marks down the price of liquor because it owns it and it's a public agency, which is a whole stupid thing to begin with that I won't get into now. But in any event, they got this really rare whiskey, I guess, for a low price. Tina Kotech fired Marks last month before any of this was public. And it's just now become public that the, what was going on at OLCC Kotech is saying that she was unaware of this scandal when she fired Marx, but I want to point out a couple things. First is, we don't know who these lawmakers are that allegedly received the purloined liquor from the OLCC. I would just point out that some people knew about this prior to the election in 2022. We are just now finding out about it, and we are finding out about it not long after Tina Kotek fired the former director of the OLCC. Let's keep a close eye on this one. That timing seems very interesting to me, and I'll be keeping a close eye out for who these lawmakers are that maybe received this this stuff improperly, as it turns out. That's all we've got in terms of Oregon headlines today. Now let's go ahead and get to the interview of John Horvick. And now I'd like to welcome John Horvick, vice president of DHM Research, which is a Portland-based polling and research firm, John is an astute follower of all things politics, Oregon and nationally. He has a great Twitter feed, which is how I found him. And his Twitter handle is just at Horvick, at H-O-R-V-I-C-K. And if you're a political nerd, which you might be because you're listening to this podcast, he's a great follow to stay up on what's happening in the political world. Welcome to the Oregon Roundup podcast, John.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Chuck. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time today. We're recording a little bit before 1 o'clock p.m. on uh, Thursday, February 9th. and wanted to just get John's take on a few political issues that we've talked about here on the podcast and we've had in the newsletter, some of which he's tweeted about. John's the first pollster we've had on the on the uh, podcast, and so we're uh, looking forward to nerding out with John here for a little bit today. I wanted to start off with the biggest political story of the last six months— is the expectation that there was going to be a quote-unquote red wave uh, nationally and in Oregon in the midterm elections in November of 22. And then the reality of the outcome, which was what I've called and others have called a red trickle, which equates to basically relatively minor Republican gains in the legislature here in Oregon, Uh and then Republicans taking the U.S. House, barely – What is your perspective on why there was that gap between expectations and outcome? You know, was it just the people, including myself, who had higher expectations for Republicans were just looking at the wrong stuff and were just baseless in that assumption? Or was the polling weird or did issues change? You know, Donald Trump kind of came back onto the scene right before the election in a way that seems to me could have impacted things negatively for Republicans. There's all kinds of stuff floating around there. And I I wonder what your thoughts are on that question.
1: Well, let's unpack here, but let's try to take some of these pieces apart. One of the things that's heading into a midterm election is historically, the out party tends to do well, tends to do quite well in, in some elections, particularly when you know, approval ratings of the president are low. A small share of the of the electorate thinks that the country is headed in the right direction, or you know, the state is heading in the right direction. When economic sentiment is negative, you know, voters look for change, and you know those things were in place. And so, if you just sort of you know think, look at history, look at the variables that have typically correlated with outcomes, it was reasonable to. You start with an assumption that the Republicans would have a very successful election. Now there are countervailing forces there too that I mean, I'll admit that I didn't give as much weight to at the time, but I think can help explain some things today. One of them is that although you know ratings of the economy were quite negative and still are quite negative. One of the observations from a polling perspective is that opinions about the economy have become sharply partisan. They're just not very correlated anymore to actual economic conditions, They're just more correlated towards, you know, who are you rooting for? A D drr who's in charge?
0: I forget if it was you, John, who tweeted this or someone else that I saw that showed the the perception of the economy, you know, come November to January, November twenty through January twenty-one, completely flipped. The Democrats yeah, thought it was yeah, yeah. terrible, then they thought it was great, and Republicans thought it was great, and then they thought it was terrible.
1: So, what I think that's probably a misreading or an overreading about economic sentiment. And so just get you know some round numbers from work that we've done here in Oregon. You know, roughly two thirds of Oregonians think that the economy is in poor shape, but also roughly about two thirds of Oregonians think it's a good time to find a quality job, and I, I think. A lot of sort of analysts and, and prognosticators really looked into the economic sentiment, concerns about inflation, and, and less about just the fact that you know people were employed, able to find work, have opportunities, and, and and didn't didn't pay as much attention to that. That's part of it. Another part of it is is that you're looking at today's voting patterns to yesterday's, you know, historical voting patterns may not be that instructive or may not be helpful. We're just much more partisan in our voting than in the past, much less split, ticket splitting. Now, there were some, and we can find some examples across the country, but just you look at, say, say take the mid-90s, for example, there's a lot more ticket splitting then than there is today. And so so maybe there's just a lot less elasticity in the electorate, you know, the willingness to move than there was in the past. Those are just, you know, a, a couple a couple things that, that come to mind. The polling, the polling is quite good. You know, a lot of the polls are done nowadays, so it's easy to cherry pick and find some that were, were wrong or even quite wrong. But if you take a step back and look at the overall averages of the polls, you know, they're as, as good as they have been in recent memory. So I don't think that the polls misled us. I mean, I think there was an over... I think that there's some misreading of the polls, kind of reading into history, reading into the, the environment. But the House House national vote was what plus two ish Republican, and and that's about what the what the polls said. So the polls are really good this cycle. I think I think we leaned a little too much into history. I think also pundits, pollsters, you know, just political people overlearned some lessons from from 2016, 2020, where you know the polls. So overestimated Democrats and and just assumed that those things were going to stick through to twenty twenty two, and um, and they didn't, you know, and, and for whatever reason they didn't. But this they had overlearned some lessons. So I, I, you know, there's probably a lot of more things, but those are some of the big things that I've been thinking about.
0: Those are all things that make a certain degree of sense to me on on the elasticity point. I, I think there's definitely something to that. Although in two thousand eighteen there was a whole lot of elasticity in the in the electorate in the first midterm, well the only midterm during Trump's presidential term where Democrats just cleaned up in a big way. And I think a lot of folks, including myself, thought that something along those lines is what was gonna happen this time in, in the Republicans' favor.
1: One of the things that you know people immediately asked me about after the election here in Oregon was about turnout. And Republican turnout was great. It was as high as it's been, you know, at least since my numbers go back to the 1960s. You know, the challenge for Republicans is that there's just fewer of them, and so even though turnout percentage was this, you know a record high, their share of the electorate was near record low. So Republicans did their part to turn out. It's just. You know, there are too few of them in Oregon right now. Democratic turnout was lower than Republicans, as it typically is, but it was solid. And so we didn't see a drop-off in Democratic turnout to to make up for the the gap that just exists in Oregon. There's roughly 300,000 more registered Democrats than there are registered Republicans in Oregon. So even if you have Republican turnouts a little bit higher, it needs to be a lot higher than it was. So that was just one of the other things that – the you know, immediate days afterwards, I saw some Republicans you know, saying that they, they were not motivated to vote. You know, Christine Drazen wasn't the sort of person that would get them out to vote. But if you look at the turnout, turnout for Republicans was, was excellent this cycle.
0: And that's a good pivot to talking specifically about the governor's race last year. It was an interesting race and kind of echoed 18 in a, little, in a way where in both cycles, even more so I think this time, The Republican was ahead, or polling even, and Drazen was actually ahead for, if you looked at public polling, for a considerable period of time until about a month before the election. Her numbers started to fall apart, and Kotex started to surge. What is your take on what happened there in that last month of the election? Was it some combination of Johnson losing supporters who were Democrats and wanted to vote Democrat anyway? and those folks all coming home to Kotech, was it maybe the, to a degree the Trump effect of Trump have appearing on the scene right before the election, reminding kind of middle-of-the-road Oregon voters, hey, guess who is at least theoretically in charge of the Republican Party that uh, <laughs> you don't like, and he's back in the headlines. Could it have been the abortion thing bringing people back home for the Democrats? What What's your take on what, what happened at the end of the governor's race?
1: Well, let me take a step back and just sort of Share with you my thinking about the electorate and what was on their mind and sort of the broader conditions first, and then backtrack into sort of the last six weeks of the election and maybe a change back towards Kotex. Head into this election, I find it helpful to just like find some comparable election or, or point in time to, you know, give some context for where we are today. And where I always returned to was the 2010 gubernatorial election in Oregon. Now, there's there's plenty of differences. Remember, that was Chris Dudley versus Kitschopper, and Kitschopper was essentially running for his third term at that point. You took that break, but, but basically he's an incumbent, more or less. So that's a, that's a big difference here. But there are some similarities. One is that if you look at that classic pollster question, are things heading in the right direction, are they off on the wrong track? In 2010, about 30% of Oregonians up that the state was heading in the right direction. In 2022, it was just about 25% of Oregonians thought that the state was heading in the right direction, which is a record low. In 2010, you had a poor economy coming sort of the Great Recession, the global financial crisis, the housing collapse, all that. You have the rise of the Tea Party movement. You have these just conditions that were created a favorable environment for Republicans. And in 2010, Dudley came within a point and a half of beating topper, and the Republicans and the Democrats split the Oregon House. There are lots of comparisons to 2010 to 2022, poor economy. Poor sense of the or just Oregonian's feeling that the states had on the, on the wrong track. 2010, you had Democrats in power in D.C. You had the trifecta with Obama the Democratic Congress, and you had that here in 2022. Again, the out-party tends to do well in midterm elections. And I think that the issue set was more favorable, or at least was favorable towards Republicans. You know, typically, at least in recent elections, typically you know, top concerns for voters have been things like jobs and the economy, health care, education, kind of bread and butter issues. And in 2022, it was homelessness. It was inflation or cost of living. And it was crime. And I think homelessness, we can kind of come back to that. It's complicated in how voters think about it and who they trust more, but certainly crime is one that voters tend to trust Republicans more on. And economic issues, generally speaking, are issues that voters tend to trust Republicans more on. So there, there's lots of like, reasons to think that a Republican could do well, that Christine Drazen could do well. And, and our polling had Drazen up just, you know, by, I think, by a point, about a month or six weeks or so before the election. And we weren't the only ones. So what changed One, assuming that we can measure a one-point difference between three candidates, but what perhaps eroded Drayson's support over the course of the last weeks. I think the, the Dobbs decision plays a really big factor. When we look back at polling that we did earlier in the year, asking voters, you know, what's the most important issue to you in the gubernatorial election? And I say earlier in the year, I mean before the Dobbs decision. Just about—I mean, not about one percent of Democrats said that abortion was their number one issue. And then in August, now that's—that's that's, I think before we see the decline in in Drayson's polling. But in August, sixteen percent of Democratic voters said that abortion was the number one issue. Now, sixteen percent might not seem like a lot, but if the number one issue among anything, lots of issues, you know, and so to get to sixteen percent is. Significant, but also from 1% to 16% really says like it's a galvanizing issue for a set of Democrats. And I think that that affected the, the election in two ways. One, it brought some Democrats back home. And although Betsy Johnson is a pro choice candidate, if you're a pro choice voter, I think that those voters are just simply Democrats. And, yeah. If that's your number you one, know, if that's your number one issue, that's you're number one issue. To your, yeah. Kotech is your, is your safer bet. And also Johnson held a set of positions that were pretty idiosyncratic. And I don't think overlap with very many voters in, in actuality. If, if abortion is your number one issue, you are probably almost certainly a pro gun control voter too. So there's like these other sort of issues with Johnson's positions that made her unattractive. And then the other is it's, Abortion both brought those voters back home, and it allowed KOTEC and, and the media, frankly, to focus on issues other than crime, other than homelessness. So it, it, it made the issue more salient to the campaign, and it brought some Democratic voters back home. You, know, and it's, you don't have to change that many voters to imagine that Christine Drazen win. You know, It was about a four-point margin, I think three and a half points. There's not that many voters that really would have to have to flip.
0: It was a pretty pretty close election, as it turned out, although not as close as it seemed for a while. On that uh, abortion point, I think I agree with the contention that the Dobbs decision, coming down as it did in, July, I believe, July of last year, really helped to save Democrats' bacon in a lot of races, including, including in the Oregon governor's race. Kind of, for the reasons you you mentioned, just in enthusiasm and intensity in giving Democrats and folks in the media who tend to be allied with the Democrats in my mind something else to talk about other than homelessness and crime and inflation and gas prices. Dobbs was decided a long time before the polling was showing Drazen up by a little bit, and Dobbs you know nothing changed really about the abortion debate between when. Drazen was polling a little bit ahead and then election day when she loses by three or four points. Do you have a theory as to why, it, kind of what role abortion played in that shift, given that it, it really didn't change as an issue at that time?
1: If you look at when the Dobbs decision happened, you can see the other data too. If you look at when the Dobbs decision happened, you don't see an immediate increase in the na- at least the national polling for the Democrats. Democrats do pick up so, over the summer, and then fall back a little bit in the last, say, few weeks before the election, it's not like you see the sharp break, right? It's this slow pickup, sort of a Democratic and a generic ballot through the late summer. And maybe that cuts, ac- cuts against the idea that Dobbs changed things. I guess what I would say is for you and I, and I imagine your listeners, we pay attention to politics closely. And I just can't emphasize this enough when I when I talk to groups. Most people do not. Like, they just don't. And, and it could just be a delay in from, you know, the decision to the media conversation to states making, you know, states across the country taking action to politicians, you know, staking ground, that it just it took a while for that theme to build up, for the pressure to build up for it to have an impact on on the election. That'd be my best explanation. I'm not sure if I really buy it. That would be my best. You know, it it could be that Dobbs is one thing, but Trump, you know, making noise again was another. It could be it could be Democrats just, you know, that they were grumpy and angry and unhappy with things, but you know when it when it came down to actually filling out the ballot, you know, it's one thing to tell a pollster, it's one thing to sort of grumble, but it's another thing to actually cast your ballot for the, the opponent. You know, it could be all those things.
0: Yeah, none of this stuff is monocausal ever. So shifting a little bit to kind of population and demographic trends in Oregon, it came out that Oregon actually lost, according to Portland State University, population between the summer of 2021 and the summer of 2022, reversing a long stretch of years in which the state was adding population population as part of that same report, I believe, was data showing that Multnomah County has lost population, pretty significant population for three years in a row now. You posted on your Twitter feed little graph about kind of the change of voter turnout in the 22 election. What what are you seeing in terms of how the decline in population in Oregon and maybe specifically in Multnomah County is affecting turnout county by county in Oregon. If you have this information, how it's affecting, if at all, party turnout in Oregon and kind of what, what you think the ramifications of this shift in, in population trends might be if it continues.
1: We can talk about turnout in different ways. You can look at turnout as a share of registered voters, turnout as a share of eligible voters. You can just look at the number of votes cast. You know, If you look at Multnomah County, you know, the share of people who turned out, just the turnout percentage was down considerably. I don't not look at the numbers in front of me, but I don't remember what it was, seven, eight percentage points from 2018. And there was more than 10,000 voter absolute voters votes cast was down, you know, ten thousand or more in Multnomah County since from twenty eighteen. There were only two counties where you had the number of ballots cast decrease. It was Multnomah County, and I think Hood River County. And Hood River County only dropped by a handful. So Multnomah County really stands out. You did see total votes cast increase in Washington and Clackamas County. So you know, suburban counties in the metro area. Turnout is multifaceted, right? It's not just number of registered voters. It's how motivated they are to vote. And Washington County and Clackamas County had some congressional races that Baltimore really didn't. And so, you know, that could be a driving factor why, you know, those uh, patterns existed. Do you look nationally and Portland's not alone, you know, San Francisco, I think Seattle, other metropolitan areas that are dealing with some of the challenges, homelessness, cost of living, I am, have seen flight as well. You've also seen Slight in communities that have a high concentration of college-educated workers, white-collar college-educated workers who can work remotely. There could be lots of things going on, and, you know, there's probably smarter people to give the explanation. What I don't really know yet, and I'm, I'm hoping to be able to do some research, is more study around who has left the area Yeah, are they Democrats? From a political perspective, like I want to know: are they Democrats, Republicans, non-affiliated voters? Are they high-income voters? One other sort of come back to why people might leave leave Multnomah County. Multnomah County has obviously passed quite a few tax measures in the last several years, and voters have passed those. But people can decide that there may be more affordable places to live if you mean by those taxes. So that that could be that could be another another factor. But I want to know who's moved, and I, I don't think we have a good answer for that, at least politically. You know, Multnomah County's share of the electorate becomes even a little bit smaller. That could have that could have an impact on things.
0: I haven't seen any data, you know, about like who's leaving in terms of income, political inclinations, ser- certainly, or anything really other than the geography from which they're they're leaving, the county from which they're leaving. Willamette Week did a really good story on this, and everything in there was anecdotal.
1: It was. I, I really enjoyed their piece. I said, and I, you know, talking to folks. Within my professional circle, my friends, but also, you know, clients, that that Amlet Week article, I encourage people to read it because it really did capture people's attention. As good as it is, I think it's like, all right, here's reasons to go study this further because, yeah, a lot of it were personal stories, and we don't have the quantitative data yet that I think will help answer some of these questions.
0: I thought it was a really interesting article, too, in part because of, you know, this is my bias and my perspective how honest it was and how honest the progressives that they interviewed who had left were about why, at least from my perspective, a lot of the media coverage about what's happened in Portland and Oregon generally has kind of glossed over, you know, the effect of homelessness, the effect of crime and or the perception of crime, whichever one you prefer, and taxes. And you know, when I when I read that, I was like, wow, that's Willamette Week. I'll bet they got some angry emails from readers when they published that thing.
1: Let me, if I can, share a couple of things about Oregon's political geography, Portland Metro Region's political geography that have really got me thinking, and I, and I, and hopefully I'll get other people thinking too. I'll say these not to be partisan. I think partisan should should take heed. One is there are lots of reasons to think that Christine Drazen should have done better – maybe even won this election. We've we've talked about some of those. The issue set was different, you know, the mood of the electorate, out party, all that stuff. 43% of voters live in the Portland metro area, Multnomah, Washington, Clackamas County. In 2018, Christine Drazen didn't make any progress at all in Multnomah County, in Clackamas County, or Washington County. In fact, she did worse in Washington County than Bueller did. Four years ago, for Republicans to win statewide, whether it's, you know, governor or president someday or attorney general, you, you can't get blown out by fifty six, fifty seven percent in Multnomah County. Can't lose Washington County by about 19 percent. Drazen won Clackamas County by I think it was by five points. You just like these numbers just will will never add up for Republicans they have got, Republicans have to make up some ground in the Portland metro area. Like, there's just not enough voters in Lake County to overcome that. And so unless and until that happens, Republicans are going to be locked out. The other is in the city of Portland. And this is a pattern that has, has persisted at least through a few elections now. So in 2020, Sarah Yannerone, did best in sort of the inner east side of Portland. If you're from Portland, like, you know, Alameda, Irvington, you know, parts of Saban King, you know, these sorts of inner, sort of inner east side neighborhoods, and did the worst east 82nd and then on the west side. And that's the same pattern of voting that happened this go around where Renee Gonzalez did best east 82nd and then the west side hardest seated best in the in the inner, more inner east part of Portland. And the east side of Portland, East Eighty Second is the most racially diverse lower income parts of the city. And those are the places where I think progressive candidates believe that they are representing, that they are they are giving voice to that low income community of color parts of the city. And and that part of the city is for, you know, repeatedly now is voting for the quote-unquote more conservative candidate now, whether Ted Wheeler, or Renee Gonzalez are conservative or not, people can judge for themselves. But for Republicans, I would say, man, you have got to figure out a way to make up some ground in the Portland metro area, and it's not—it's not going to be doubled down on Trumpism or you know MAGA politics. You're not going to win over Multnomah County voters or Washington County voters with that. And for Portland progressives, that really look hard at why you're losing the more diverse, lower-income parts of the community. If you continue to do that, uh, you're not going to have success citywide.
0: I think those are both great points, John. And I guess my overarching view of kind of what's happening in Oregon politics is, can Republicans keep the crazy tamp down enough to make themselves appealing to what appears to be quite a few Suburban voters around Portland and Clackamas especially, but also Washington County, and then this this kind of racially diverse group of lower-income folks that are kind of at the periphery on the east side of Portland who are concerned about things like crime and homelessness and maybe don't identify with the kind of Iana quest <laughs> style hardcore progressive slash socialist agenda— I thought this last time honestly, that the balance would break more toward Republicans just because of how bad things had gotten in Portland and some of the some of the Democrats that I know that you know are friends with me that live in the Portland suburbs and are just fed up with what's happening in Portland on the other hand, what those voters to a to a one are you know, loathsome of Donald Trump and pretty pro-choice. So I thought this was a cycle when it would kind of tip in Republicans' favor, but it didn't, or at least as much as what a lot of us thought. It's there. I mean, it's there as long as the Democrats continue to uh, kind of go the route that they've gone in Oregon, going quite progressive, especially with regard to homelessness and crime. That opportunity is there. I think that's, you know— Personally, why Wheeler? I think that's why Wheeler's kind of tracked back toward, toward the center, so to speak. But I think that's a, a really helpful analysis, John. I want to be sensitive to your time. Mention Ted Wheeler and his his what I perceive to be anyway with his in his second term here, kind of going back to the middle on homelessness, crime, mental health. He's you know got this big proposal where he wants to ban camping on the streets of Portland and build a, bun- a bunch of uh, shelters for folks to go into. Talking a different game about crime and policing than he did in 2020 for sure, and he's even out there saying that you know Oregon needs to make it easier to commit people who have who are mentally ill, whether against the, uh, against their will, which is something that Eric Adams has talked about in New York, and I think we're we're kind of on the cusp of having a much bigger conversation about that issue nationally and in in Oregon. What do you think is going on with Wheeler? And do you think his – first of all, am I right? Is he tacking back to the center? And do you think that the polling indicates that's a good idea for him? And do you think it will work? I'm
1: going to speak as a pollster what the man, what the mayor, Ted Wheeler, is doing and sort of why he's doing it. Like, I I don't have particular insight into his decision-making – but from a, from a public opinion perspective, sort of what are the what are we hearing from voters? What are the forces out there that would be motivating an elected official and his position? That's probably where I, where I can best speak. When we ask folks, you know, what's the most important issue, say, the, whether it's the state or city of Portland, like it's, it's homelessness and and it you know, has been for a while. And it really sort of picked up, say, about 2017 ish, where you really see a spike so it's really clear what the number one issue is. You know, what Portland voters specifically want their elected officials to do about it, that's more complicated. There are, you know, different constituencies that emphasize different factors of what drive homelessness. I think, you know, what I've really observed in in the sort of political conversation is that people are just having different conversations when they talk about homelessness. I think the activists, and I, I don't mean that in a pejorative, you know, those who are doing the work on the ground to, to serve the community best they know how, have a more complete, more full picture of what homelessness is. And they're talking about everything from, you know, people who are at the risk of eviction to people who maybe, you know, are couch surfing for a bit of time to, you know, someone in a domestic violence situation. And, you know, they have and they're sort of thinking about things from that you know these, all these different perspectives and you can applaud them for that. When I talk to voters, like sit down in a focus group with voters and the issue of homelessness comes up, what they are talking about is people in mental health crisis in the street who are living in unsanctioned camping who are doing drugs and and, and, and feel it, who feel their pers- personal safety is at risk when when they're when they're nearby. Like that it's that they' just like, that's what they're talking about. And so like part of part of like just like we're just having different conversations. When we do ask voters, like, what is the main cause of homelessness? Is it, you know, is homelessness primarily caused by a lack of affordable places to live? Which is, I think, where much more the advocates start from. And we talk about the housing-first policies, Or is homelessness mostly the result of drug addiction and mental health? It's about two to one, where the two is on drug addiction and mental health. Yeah, I'm not a policy guy. It's not my expertise. But... When the typical voter is thinking, it visualizing homelessness and thinking about someone in a mental health crisis, someone doing drugs in the street, someone camping in the street, on the sidewalk, whatever, if that's what they believe the cost, and then they hear politicians or advocates downplay that, dismiss that, discount that concern, or at least it can feel that way, it creates a very difficult political environment, a very difficult community environment to solve these sorts of problems but that's where the typical voter is at you know they may be wrong but but if if they don't feel like that they're heard or that you know leaders aren't addressing their concerns there's going to be backlash to that we have asked a number of times about banning unsanctioned camping about creating designated camping sites and, and it, we've tried different language we've used force people into camping sites we've emphasized that there'd be you know, wouldn't be protection from the weather or might not be protection from the weather. It, it You know, the, the results can change a bit. But Portland voters, Portland region voters are have been overwhelmingly supportive of those policies. So if you're if you are mayor of the community and in, in, you know, seeing polling results that say, you know, voters think it's mental health and drug addiction, voters are supportive of banning non camping, voters are supportive of large designated camps, you may feel like you have permission to, to advocate for those sorts of policies. Now, voters are pro- are supportive of other things, too, right? I mean, they're supportive of you know, creating incentives for low-income housing. I find the homeless sort of political debate similar to the policing debate. Like, in 2020, like, there's, you know, the defund the police calls and, you know, people argue whether people really meant defund the police or not or, or whatever. In the public opinion, and the polling, it was just always really clear voters were both ends, right? Voters who want more accountability police and they wanted more resources for police. Like they didn't they wanted they wanted policing and they wanted Portland's response. The voters at large were never on one side of the, of the issue or the other. And homelessness is it's, it's often the same where, you know, voters are are supportive of different types of policies very much in favor of uh, ending unsanctioned camping and, and would support the sorts of designated campgrounds that the mayor is proposing.
0: And they support lots of other things too. I've seen the polling that indicates that Portland voters do support the banning of unsanctioned camping. And to be honest with you, it's been surprising to me that it's taken as long as it has for Portland elected officials to respond to that inclination and it's not only Portland, it's over here in Bend. I mean, our to be quite honest with you, Ted Wheeler would be the most conservative member of our city council right now. And it's the same dynamic where I haven't seen local polling on it, but I pretty firmly believe that people in Bend, you know, support banning unsanctioned camping and we're we're farther away from doing that than Portland is. It definitely seems like there's kind of that you, you mentioned the the activist and I don't mean that in a pejorative way either, influence over elected officials in Oregon cities pretty significantly outsizes their their share of the electorate.
1: It's a classic case of well-organized, well-resourced minority can be more effective than, you know, disorganized, kind of unclear message majority. I'm not saying one policy is right or wrong, but just the political dynamics, like did you look at just the, the shape of, where public opinion's at, that's just how things are playing out right now.
0: Quickly, to sum up here, is there, since you're a smart guy and a, a pollster and you know what good polls look like and bad polls look like, is there a national pollster or polling outfit or maybe a, several of them that are kind of your go tos as reliable, good pollsters on the national side?
1: Yeah, I'd say the ones that you probably would find on your own. But I mean, I think YouGov does a lot of really good work. I think you know Gallup and Pew both do really great work. They all sort of serve a different niche. Morning Consult does some really great work at the statewide. I mean, they have great state-to-state comparisons for things like you know gubernatorial approval ratings, senator approval ratings. They do really interesting stuff that that I rely on to sort of see how Oregon is comparing to other places. I mean, those are just some. I mean, there are also other shops like. P-R-R-I, I I think it's Public Religion. Can't remember what the RRI stands for. They do great research on the role of religion in American politics. I they're a terrific resource. Those are good ones. And there's uh, lots of great statewide focused polls, polling firms that will you'll get attention during election cycle, but otherwise you probably wouldn't see too much. But, you know, Pew, Gallup, YouGov, Morning Consult are all good ones.
0: Well, thank you for that expert analysis, since there's all kinds of polling out there these days, and uh, some of it's good, some of it's bad, and most of us don't really know how to tell the difference. Well, John, I really want to thank you for your time. I personally have enjoyed the conversation a lot, and I've learned a lot. Other than your Twitter handle, which is at Horvick, H-O-R-V-I-C-K, how can Oregon Roundup listeners keep track of what you and DHM are up to?
1: Our website, dhmresearch.com, we post a lot of our research that we commission on there so you go to our blog and create our stuff there you can just reach out to me i'm pretty accessible you know you can dm me send me an email i'll answer i like to talk shop i like to answer questions so please reach out i also have a twitter account called oregon at 100 if you like oregon history oregon old oregon newspapers check me out there too
0: i saw that on your profile and i want to check that out because i'm kind of a a closeted or not very closeted oregon history nerd myself so i'll I'll make sure to follow you there as well. John Horvick from DHM Research, thank you so much for your time. And we hope to have you back on sometime, maybe when you guys come out with some big new polling results that we can chew through with you.
1: Yeah, happy to talk. Just give me a hug.
0: Great. Thanks, John. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John as much as I did. I learned a lot. I always learn a lot from these interviews. They're honestly discussions I'd love to have just on my own, but I'm glad I get to share them with you. I hope you enjoy them. And I hope you enjoy your weekend here in Oregon, if you're here or wherever you may be. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the Oregon Roundup podcast on your podcast app of choice and become a paid subscriber of the Oregon Roundup on Substack. Appreciate you listening and appreciate your attention to the Oregon Roundup. Have a good one. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at oregonroundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at oregonroundup.substack.com.